is uh, John chapter 12. John chapter 12. Now, there's a reason. This is the actual text that we will deal with, uh, John 12, 12 through 19. But I will read John 12, verses 12 through 26. Okay, and then I'll, I'll read, I'll pray, and then i explain why I'm going to read the whole thing, but only work with that. Okay, so uh, let's pray, and then um, let's uh, read, and then we'll pray. Starting verse 12. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet Him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your King is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about Him and had been done to Him. The crowd that had been with Him when He called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised Him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet Him was that they heard He had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing? Look, the world has gone after him. Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. This is God's word. May he add his blessing to it. Let's pray. Father, it is with tremendous joy that we come before you, able in Jesus to address you, as Father. I pray above all this morning for forgiveness of our sins. I certainly do not come to you as one deserving your love, pardon, and blessing, but I come before you as one in need of it. We once again come empty-handed for we have nothing to offer you that you do not have. But we need you. We come to you and we need your presence. We need your Holy Spirit to give us life. Help us see today how much we need you. Help us see how desperate we are and help us cry out, Hosanna. Help us cry out, Welcome, O King. Let us see you as we never have before. And let none of us leave this place not knowing you. That's our prayer. That's our prayer for today as we look at your holy word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So, this portion of scripture is really a, a one unit of thought until verse 26. And I had planned on working with the whole thing. But I change my mind. Next week, next time, we, we look at this together. Let's look at all of those verses from 12 to 26. And, and I'm certain we will be blessed by it. But today, I have a simple goal. 
It is just a simple goal, which is to help you, to plead with the Lord that He would let us see how desperate we are for Him. How much we need Him. You see, in life, sometimes it feels like you know the Lord, you've been going to church, you have placed your hope for the future, you have placed your hope for forgiveness in Jesus Christ, and then you start living life. There's a lot going on. There's a lot of cares in this world and things competing for your affection. And many times you don't even mean to walk away from Him. Many times you don't even fall into gross sin. But there's a certain apathy. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? Am I, am I alone? There's a certain apathy that creeps into our hearts. And we kind of just start living life, maybe assuming the gospel assuming the good news of Jesus Christ, maybe forgetting how bad the bad news is. And it just kind of cruise through. And sometimes it might be that you wake up one day and you have a great devotion and you have a good time reading the Bible and it feels like the Lord is present. And then you remember, when was the last time this happened? When was the last time that I caught myself treasuring Jesus Christ just on the couch on a Tuesday afternoon? Or on a drive, a song came on and, and God was present in my car one day. And you don't even remember when that happened. You don't even remember when you sought the Lord with a sense of desperation. With a true sense of, He is our only hope. With a true sense that with with out God, we can do nothing. We have no hope. We can accomplish nothing if not for and by the mercy and grace of God. Today, the worship or the scene moves from the, the, the private scene from the house of a man in Bethany, a little village where they threw a dinner. They had a banquet to honor Jesus. That's the beginning of chapter 12, the end of chapter 11. They had a banquet to honor Jesus. But that wasn't a house. A lot of people were, uh, a lot of people from that town were in that house. Mary came out, uh, uh, Lazarus was sitting there, Martha was serving, and uh, someone gave the house for them to throw this party. They wanted to honor Jesus. Jesus had just raised Lazarus from the dead. The man had been dead for four days. He had two sisters. They wanted to honor Jesus. Lazarus wanted to honor Jesus. Presumably, Simon, the man who held this party in his house, had been healed from his leper by his leper uh, leprosy by Jesus. For after all, there was no real cure for it in those days. So they have that party and they honor Jesus. A lot of people see it. The word gets out. People are talking about this. People are talking about this. This is not your everyday entertaining miracle. You know, people don't come out, come back from the dead like this. So everybody starts talking about it. And Jesus allows people to go back to Jerusalem and let them know everybody in Jerusalem. Not everybody, we'll talk about it. But they, Jesus allows people to go back to Jerusalem for the celebration of the Passover and freely talk about it. Jesus knew that the word was going to get out, that he was coming to this party, to this celebration of this feast, the Passover feast, which is one of the most important in the Jewish calendar. Hundreds of thousands of people would come to Jerusalem. They would come a week early. They would celebrate. Jews, uh, Jews from all parts of the world, Jews from, from the, the diaspora, the, the, what, the dispersion, that were living in other places in the world, they would come to celebrate it in Jerusalem. And the problem is that Jesus was a marked man. 
the authorities wanted to kill Jesus. They wanted to arrest Jesus. The Jewish leaders did not like that Jesus raised this man from the dead. And they had issued a warning for his, a warrant for his arrest. And they told the population, if you see this man, let us know so we can come and arrest him. So Jesus for probably a couple of days went into hiding. But then he came back. He had this party, public, and he let them know that he was going to Jerusalem. People went to Jerusalem and started telling people. And our text says that they were bearing witness of what Jesus had done. There is great tension. The authorities want to arrest Jesus and kill Jesus. They made a decision in the Sanhedrin. The Jewish national, the, the council of the leadership, they made a decision. Let's kill him. It is important that this man gets killed. That we kill him. That he dies so we can save the nation. Because if we don't kill him, he's going to come into the city. And people will hail him as king. And there can be only one king. Only Caesar. The Romans will not appreciate this. They will come and they will crush us. They will destroy our temple and we will lose our place. We will lose our authority. We have a good thing going on here. We'll lose our position. Let's kill this man. So that's, the, that's what the authorities, the Jewish leadership wanted. The crowd is talking about him. Jesus is the newest controversy. The highest one. He is the, the latest headline. Will he come? Is he going to come? Where is Jesus? Is he going to come or not? We want to see him. Then, the Jews, the people that were in Bethany, that saw this miracle, that went to the banquet, that heard about the banquet, that found out that Jesus was coming, they go and they start bearing witness. There's a great messianic expectations, messianic fervor in those days. They want someone to come and liberate them and free them from the oppression of the Romans. In those days, that was, that was high. Jesus has been putting the evidence for the last three years. He has been performing miracle after miracle. Sign after sign. Prophecy after prophecy has been being fulfilled in the last three years. So Jesus heads to the city of Jerusalem. Everybody's talking about it. And he arrives there. And then we see that Jesus is taking the final step towards, I mean, one more step towards final confrontation. In the past, what they wanted to, in John 6, when they wanted to crown him as king, he flees to the mountains. He doesn't want to be crowned. He does not accept the worship. He leaves. He's like, I'm not going to be king. I'm out of here. Spends the night in prayer. Will he do this here? You know the answer. We've read it. We see that Jesus is walking fearlessly to his death. Today we stand in the shadow of the cross. In the book of John, as far as pages of the book and chapters, we still have long ways to go, but as far as time to the cross, we've got very, very little. Jesus is moving fast. And He's fearlessly about to face the cross. Where He will finally defeat death, Satan, and sin. The cross where He will receive the unhindered unleashed full blow of God's righteous, furious wrath. Not because he was a sinner, because God hates sinners and sin, and that's whom he punishes. But Jesus is innocent. He's never committed any sin. But he did it for us. He did it so that we would come to Him and live. So that by coming to Him, we would not have to suffer such a terrible death. And here we see the expression of God's love in Jesus Christ as He moves fearlessly to the cross. He arrives in Jerusalem. The crowd goes out 
to meet Him. They're crying, Hosanna! Hosanna! Blessed is the One. Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. That's a, a portion of Psalm 118. That, that one particular is verse 26. If you want, I think it would be good if you uh, can go to Psalm 118. We're going to take a look at a couple of verses. And they say, Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, we talked about people from everywhere coming to Jerusalem. So that, that messianic psalm, that psalm, had become, over the years, had become a common greeting where the people that were already in Jerusalem, they would welcome the pilgrims arriving, singing, chanting that psalm. Welcome, welcome, come in. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Because presumably people were coming to celebrate Passover, to celebrate the day when the Lord had led them out of Egypt. The great wonders of God where He parted the sea. So they were coming to celebrate and people that had arrived already, that had been welcomed by the same psalm, it became a greeting. It was a time of great joy and celebration and expectation. So they would say that to those who were coming in. Jesus... It's coming into town. That would be completely appropriate. Jesus was obviously a Jewish man. And he was coming in. So that would be totally appropriate to welcome Jesus in that way. That would not imply, that alone would not imply any expectation of messianic identity from Jesus at all. That wouldn't say that, that they are banking all of their hope, the national hope of Israel on that man, that would not imply that at all. After all, they would use that psalm, that verse, they, that welcome to all the pilgrims coming into Jerusalem. But they added something. Even the king of Israel. Now, that's odd. Because they did not address all pilgrims as kings. They did not address pilgrims as kings. But this one man, this Jesus that they had heard that raised someone from the dead, when he comes in and they know a lot of the evidence, a lot of what Jesus had already done, it sounds like they made a decision. A lot of them probably are wondering, is this the one man that God had promised, that God has been promising for so long? Is he the one that's going to come in and crush our enemies? And they welcome him. And they use a word. They say, Hosanna. Hosanna. And this is exactly why I decided to slow down only in this portion of of Scripture. Because this is, a, this is a wonderful, wonderful word. It might have become one of those words that we as Christians just become a little familiar with it and we just say and we sing and the song is good and we say Hosanna in the highest and maybe we don't even know what it means. I, I didn't even fi find out what Hosanna meant till years after I was a Christian. Hosanna is actually a proper name in, in the country I'm from, and a, a first name. I was wondering where this woman would be when they kept singing Hosanna, Hosanna. I didn't know. I thought it was an actual character in the Bible. And, yeah, I was completely illiterate. Uh, not as much anymore. Uh, so, this might become one of those words that we're not that familiar with, or we are too familiar, over-familiarized with it, and we just pass over it. And I really pray that, that God would not allow us to live like this. God would not allow us to, to be just familiar with it and not pay attention to how desperate this word is. You see, Hosanna had become a greeting. Hosanna had become a word of praise. But it's not, I'll get to the meaning of it, but it's not a word of praise that is explicit like, our God is an awesome God. He reigns from heaven above with wisdom and power. Our God is an awesome... It's not an, an adjective. 
Hosanna is not like saying, How great is our God! Hosanna is a word of praise. That is true and it's beautiful. Hosanna is a word of praise by implication. Hosanna simply, simply means, Save me, help me. But it's intense. It's, it's a word of desperation. It's a cry of despair. Many times used to present your needs to the king, to the one that has power over life and death and probably is the only one that can help you or save you. It's a great word. Here's one way in which uh, the word Hosanna is used in the, in the Old Testament. You can find it in, in other places. Um, and this is at 2 Samuel 14, verses 1-7. through 7. This is what's happening. Um, now Joab, the son of Zeruiah, knew the king's heart went to Absalom. And Joab sent to Tekoa and brought from there a wise woman and said to her, Pretend to be a mourner and put on mourning garments. Do not anoint yourself with oil, but behave like a woman who has been mourning for many days for the dead. Go to the king and speak thus to him. So Joab put the words in her mouth. When the woman of Tekoa came to the king, she fell on her face to the ground and paid homage and said, Save me, O king! And, and that's the word Hosanna, right? Save me, O king! And the king said to her, What is your trouble? She answered, I am a widow. My husband is dead. And your servant had two sons, and they quarreled with one another in the field. There was one there was no one to separate them, and one struck the other and killed him. And now the whole clan has risen against your servant, and they say, Give up the man who struck his brother, that we may put him to death for the life of his brother whom he killed. And so they would destroy the, the, heir, the heir also. Thus they would quench my coal that is left and leave to my husband, neither name nor remnant on the face of the earth. Now, it's a lie. She's being fake. But do you see how desperate the situation she's presenting to the king is? Her husband died. She has only two sons left. One kills the other. And now the, 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 the people in the village, the clan, is rising up against the only son that she has left. She's going to be completely alone. She lost her husband, lost one son. Now another one is going to get killed and she'll be left no inheritance. Her husband will not have a name. Her lineage will end right there and then. That's the situation that she is presenting the king with. It's meant to be desperate. Can you imagine if that was true? Her life is ruined, and that's when she uses that word. It's a, an intensive word. Save me. I'm desperate. It's a word of desperation. When applied to God, it's a word that, that acknowledges. It praises God because it acknowledges our desperation for God. It acknowledges our despair for God's grace in our lives. It says with your actions, with your words, it says that God, you're the only one. Without you, I can do nothing. And no, it's, it's a word to be used in any moment of our life. It's an attitude of our hearts that we need to have. Whether it's sunny or it's a crazy storm in our lives. Because what we need to get is that no, I mean, whether we like it or not, whether we accept it or not, whether we understand it fully or not, we are moving daily towards our death. Christianity contemplates death daily. We're moving towards it. We're close to an eternity. Life is so much more than this physical body and this space, time, time-space continuum. 
We have been created. We are created to last forever. And our destiny lies in the hands of the sovereign ruler of the universe, the Creator. And that may be a fabulous or a frightening thing. There is no escaping the sovereign hand of the righteous, loving God. But again, if you know Him, why you Jew even consider such a thing? If you hear the love in His words when He commands all men everywhere to abandon their sin and come to Him, or if you hear the compassion and pardon and forgiveness in His words when He says, Come unto me, all of you who are tired and overburdened with this life and world. I have plenty of rest to give you. I will give you rest. Come to me. Oh, if you hear those words, if you hear the love in His voice, why would you consider escaping His hand? Why? Why would you resist His daily grace upon you? God has promised that a broken and contrite heart He will not reject. And you can come to Him. You don't have to run from Him no matter what is happening in your life. You don't have to run from Him. You can come to Him. No matter what you've done. No matter what's been done to you. Or if your life is being tremendously awesome. And you don't have a care in the world. You still need Jesus. You still need Jesus. He did that. He went to the cross. He's moving towards the cross now. Because He loves. Because He is love. He's going to be put on that cross by His enemies. But God shows His love for us. In that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. It's Romans chapter 5, verse 8. This is a text filled with prophetic speech. In the end of last, last chapter, chapter 11, we see that the leader of them all, the leader of, of the Jewish council, Caiaphas, he says it's important that one man dies to save the nation. And he had an intent. He had an intention in his heart and what he was saying was true. But then John goes ahead and explains why he said that. And he says, you know, Caiaphas, he had his motives and everything, but he did not say that of his own accord. But being high priest that year, he spoke prophetically. He prophesied that Christ would die for the nation. The very words that got Jesus to the cross, that got Jesus murdered, were the words that God Himself spoke through the sinful lips of Caiaphas. We see in this picture that God is in total control and much like Caiaphas, they're saying things that have a much, much deeper, profound meaning. They welcome Jesus as the great Savior, the victorious conqueror. When they wave palm branches and they make the, 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 the red carpet, when they throw it on the floor, they create a royal path for Jesus. They're welcoming Him as King. 
the palm branches, they are, uh, the palm tree branches, they are a national symbol, they are also a sign of victory, of a victorious conqueror. And they attribute it to, to Jesus. Oh, the king of Israel. And they put it all on the floor and they shout Hosanna. They're welcoming him as king, but they have no idea. They say king of Israel, but they have no idea that Jesus' kingdom goes way farther than Israel, than Jerusalem. It's way far beyond being only a national kingdom. It's way deeper than just an earthly kingdom. Jesus is the King of the universe. I love that we got to read Colossians 1 today and we see Jesus standing, not as first thing created, but standing over and above creation, creating everything that was created and He rules over it all and He is more precious than all things created. They welcome, they welcome Him as a King, as Savior. When they say Hosanna, they shout desperately, Save me! Help me, O King! They have no idea. I mean, you're told that uh, they didn't understand these things until it all happened. Then the Holy Spirit brought to their minds... Just like Jesus has, had promised, the Holy Spirit brought to their minds Scripture. They said, oh, wow, this was written about Him. Oh, Isaiah 53, they did this to Him. Zechariah 9.9, He came sitting on a donkey. Oh, this is why He came in on a donkey. This is why He said, go get the donkey. If someone says anything, say, hey, the Lord said He needed the, the young donkey. This is why. Oh, He came back from the... That's what He meant when He cleansed the temple. When He drove out all the money changers and He said, destroy this temple and in three days I'll rebuild it. That's what He meant. All of these scriptures, they're fulfilled and they're being brought to mind. But... That is after the whole thing happened. As this thing is happening, there's just too much going on. We, they're just caught up in this. They're caught up in events that are leading to the most cataclysmic event in human history. The cross of Jesus Christ. When two worlds collide. When the spiritual world was shaken, forever changed. When Jesus Christ defeated sin and death and Satan and appeased forever the wrath of God against sinners and accomplished salvation from even having faith to daily abandon our sin and run towards Him, being transformed, persevering in pursuing Jesus, to one day dying faithfully, honoring Jesus with our life, to one day being resurrected from the dead, to being glorified and being like He is, immortal and, and sinless and delighting in God perfectly forever and ever and ever. Jesus on that day, on that cross, He accomplished the whole thing. He purchased salvation fully, completely for all of those who come to Him. I mean, I wonder if we sometimes, if we even get this, if we even get that the wrath of God 
is reserved against, is reserved for every sin or every human being that dies in their sin, in rebellion and rejection against this holy, beautiful, awesome God. And we had been, we have been, we maybe are in that position. And God miraculously comes and allows you to hear the offer of the gospel. My son has died for this. You can stop this futile, exhausting task of pleasing me through your own works, your own so-called being good. Just come to me. And you do, and He restores you, and He saves you. I wonder if we get the magnitude of all of this. And if we do, let us live in it. Let us live in this wonder that we are caught up in something so much greater than we are. So much greater than we are. There's so much more going on. These people are saying, Come, Savior, come, welcome! They have nationalistic, patriotic hopes of driving out the Romans, which is something that the Messiah will do. It's not at that time. Even after Jesus had been resurrected in, in the beginning of, of, of Acts, they're saying, chapter 1, verse 6, they're talking about Jesus saying, I'm coming back. I'm not, you know, I'm going. The Holy Spirit is coming. That's fine. And it's going to be awesome. Okay. A lot's going to be done. I'm coming back. It's fine. You guys are going to be with me. Okay? And Jesus is promising that. And even then, Jesus is about to ascend into heaven, to literally float into heaven. His disciples, the beloved apostles, they're looking at Him saying, at this time, will you drive out these people? Will you establish our kingdom? The Jewish Israeli kingdom, will you do that? Jesus goes ahead to say, slow down. It's not for you to know the times and seasons, but know this. I'm coming. I'm coming. But it just goes to show that they have these expectations. They didn't understand everything that was going on. But they saw this Jesus as a conqueror, as a king. But Jesus saved much more, like I, I just said. Jesus' salvation is much more than Salvation from physical oppression is much deeper and much greater than just driving out an oppressing army. Jesus conquered the salvation of our souls. Jesus conquered the wrath of God as He received it, not, at, not ducking it. Through suffering, He conquered our eternal suffering. And He purchased our eternal joy forever and ever. There's a paradox. Because Jesus rolls into town um, not riding a stallion. A white horse that shows power, an expensive animal, a kingly animal. No, he rides in, you know, to Jerusalem, riding a, not even a donkey, but a small one. I mean, the thing doesn't look good, it doesn't really run too fast. I wonder if it could even, like, hold Jesus too well. It was a young one. I mean, that may look like a lot of things, but that does not convey conqueror king. Agreed? That does not convey... No, that does not show... Okay, Romans, watch out, he's coming. That does not strike fear in the opposing army. Okay, so you're saying that this great military leader is the skinny carpenter riding a small donkey. Somehow that didn't strike fear on the Romans. That is, that is a paradox. 
that they're hailing him as king, as victorious conqueror, and Jesus comes in riding a small donkey. That does not say I'm conquering. That does not say I'm going to drive out the army. You know what, you know what a small donkey is? Humble. A small donkey is humble. And that is exactly, exactly what this king, this God of the universe who's sovereign over all, who's the ruler of all and the just judge of all earth, that's what he is and that's what he shows us that he is. That's what he did in agreeing to become a man in the person of Jesus Christ, in taking humanity upon himself, and living on earth, not as a rich king, but as a carpenter, a poor one, who during his ministry didn't even have a house to go to. He didn't ride airplanes. He walked around Palestine didn't have a pillow to lay his head at night that's the humble God that we have he did not have to do any of that we have to understand that God does not owe salvation to anyone he does not owe me anything why is it that when I'm suffering I ask him why Oh, why me? I get that. I'm with you right there. But oh, when we come to, to, to passages like this that let us see the beauty of God, the nature of God, the character of God, the work of God and who He is and what He did for me, like, wow. I want to be the one who surrenders. I want to be the one who lives in this attitude of, save me. I don't want to rebel against God. I don't want to say, why me? And this is just one of those texts. I'm reminded of Philippians, Philippians 2 that portrays, that shows, this portrays what Philippians 2 says about the mind of Jesus, about Jesus being humble in humility, come to earth to serve us. This is what it says, starting in verse 5 of second chapter of the book of Philippians. The Apostle Paul says this, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but made himself nothing. Taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Is that what we are seeing in John chapter 12, Jesus being obedient to His Father, carrying out His mission, and moving towards the cross. The death, the gruesome death of a cross. Gruesome death. This attitude of Hosanna, save me. This cry of despair is one that needs to be true in our lives no matter what's happening. Because were Jesus to remove His loving, gracious hand from us, even for one second, we would all be done. Creation would crash. For by the word of His power, He upholds all things 
together. The mercy of God is the reason why we have not been consumed. All the suffering and brokenness of, of this world and all of the tears and all of the things that happen in this sin-broken world, God, and all the rebellion that is uh, led and lived against God. God, for the sake of the elect, endures them all. Those are heavy, heavy words. Pray that God grants us this attitude of Hosanna every day that we get out of bed, that we would have in our front burner, no matter what happens, I need Him. No matter what happens, I need Him in this gruesome battle of sanctification. The Bible is filled with, with this language of fight and, 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 and war. The Apostle Paul exhorts his disciple, son, spiritual son, Timothy, fight the good fight of faith. It's a fight in moving every day towards Jesus and becoming more like Him and abandoning your, your love and practice of sin. It's a gruesome fight. See, last night there was a, a, a boxing match. Some of you might know one of the men there, uh, in my opinion, might be one of the best of all times. He takes very little damage. It's very enjoyable to watch him work. And he hasn't had much of a fight in, in some time, in my opinion. Um, he's been given all these presents because he's head and shoulders above almost everybody else. And he's been given all of these presents, these opponents that... They don't give much to him. And I heard that last night he found himself in a little bit of a fight. He still, he still won, but he had a bloody nose since. I mean, he hadn't had one of those in I don't even know how long. And, but he found himself in a fight. He still won, unanimous decision. Um, fights are relatively easy for him. <laughs> that is not... A picture of sanctification. That is not a picture of the Christian life. I want you to know that you do not stand head and power, head and shoulders above the sin that haunts you. In your power, you do not stand head and shoulders against the devil who walks around roaring like a lion, waiting for someone to devour. See, if you're in peace with your sin, then life might even be fun. <laughs> and it's fine, and sin is your ally. You are sin's ally, and you love, live, and recruit people to sin with you, and, and that's a different thing. But if you wake up in the morning and you decide to mortify, to kill your sin, that's a serious battle. And that attitude of, Hosanna, save me, I'm desperate, you're all I got, you're all I have, you are all I need... That is crucial. You will not abandon your sin without that attitude of desperation. And that's my hope and prayer for you. That's my hope and prayer for me, for us in this church, that we'll know that, that yeah, we are imperfect, but man, do we hate our sin. But man, do I hate my sin. That we would come to God not know, knowing that we don't deserve anything, but man, do we need His forgiveness and power to overcome sin. And I want you to know that He has accomplished that too. And daily He has the power, resurrection power, to give you new life and help you defeat sin. It's slow. It's a battle. But man, it's so joyful.
as He is victorious King in your life daily and He helps you to love to love everything that you love. All of these things that we enjoy that are His grace upon our lives, we love them all for His sake. Man, that's so awesome. He has that power. He has accomplished it. We need to realize that, to believe that, and to live that. And that cry of despair, let it, let it be our cry of despair uh, today. Let it be our cry. Lord, help us. Lord, we need you. We need you. This, I mean, this humble God. Can you imagine that, that he did that? Are you being able to contemplate who Jesus is? Think of everything you love, everything you have. The things that you consider your glory, let's say, or, or also the memories. Um, you probably have a lot of good memories, a lot of good people that you love, people that you cherish in your life, and uh, you have possessions, you have family, whatever it is. You treasure things, and that's not necessarily wrong. That's not always sinful. Think every, think of everything that you lived and everything that you've loved and things that you still do love, things and people that you still love. Now imagine that you lose all of it. Could you give up everything you have had, everything that you have, everything that you love for His sake? How? Let's say one moment you wake up and you have absolutely nothing. You gave everything up for the sake of someone else. I want to say that all of these things that you treasure and you feel just trying to imagine losing it all and not having all of those things that are so dear to your heart compared to what the Lord Jesus gave up, compared to what God left in heaven humbling Himself in the person of Jesus Christ, coming to live in this sinful, broken world as a man who in his body had the effects of sin. He needed to sleep. He, he cried. He was sad. Needed showers like everybody else. Had pain like everybody else. And he even died, even though he wasn't a sinner. He did not have to do any, any, any of that. The glory He veiled, I mean, all of your glories, all of my glories and memories and love, this loss is considered nothing compared to what He has done. Now, why? Why would we resist his love. Why would we wake up and think that we've got this? Why would we forget how much we need Him? Let us come to God today knowing that He has the power to raise even the dead. And in this portion of Scripture, He hasn't risen Himself from the dead, but He has performed the miracles of miracles up to that day, bringing someone from the dead. Someone that that was already decaying because it had been four days buried already. Not buried, but in a tomb. And He performed that miracle. We need to know that His power is the same today. Scripture claims that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He hasn't lost any of His power. He lives to make, he lives to make intercession for His saints forever. Right now, Jesus stands always before the Father, interceding for His saints, interceding for all those who come to God through Him. 
that has power. And no matter where you are in life, you need to believe this. I'm calling you to believe this. That Jesus Christ is alive and well and He saves today. Today is a great day to cry, Hosanna, save me, Lord. Whether you've known Him for 30 years, whether you're churched and you're not in gross sin and is pursuing Him, this is a one cry fits all hearts. Oh, we need Him. And I want you to see it. I want to see it. I need to be more like this. I need to be more like this. You see, we stand, as far as like revelation-wise, we stand in such a greater position over the apostles, over the disciples of that day. They didn't have a closed canon or, you know, in English, but they didn't have the Bible complete. They were living in the midst of all of these things that are culminating into the most cataclysmic event in history of mankind, the cross of Jesus Christ. We look back, we see Scripture, the full revelation of God, finished, done, complete for our salvation. God revealing Himself for us. In his holy scripture. So we can look back and we have all of this, all of these scriptures coming together, coming at us. And we see so much more than they saw at that particular moment. And that's the grace of God in our lives that he would write this book for us. And they say, the whole world, the Pharisees say, the whole world has gone after him. I mean, I think it's awesome that the next verse says that, that the Greeks were there. That's somewhat unusual. I'm just going to say a few things uh, about the second portion of this text. But that's somewhat unusual for the Greeks to be there in Jerusalem. It's such a Jewish feast. Um, but I think John knows what he's doing, and he's doing that on purpose. It's just a sign of the whole world has come after him. Also, there's people from all around the world, all kinds of Jewish people coming from everywhere that are there that apparently are welcoming Jesus and acknowledging Jesus to be the great Savior, Jesus to be the conqueror king, Jesus to be the Savior of Israel. And they welcome him. Now, this crowd acknowledges all of these things and they say all of these things about Jesus. And they even cry, Hosanna. And that's emotional, that's beautiful. But many of them, many of them in this crowd, just days later, just days later will yell and scream, Crucify Him! Crucify Him! Give us the thief. Let Jesus die. That happens. And I beg you, let it not be the attitude of your heart where one day you're emotional, you love Jesus, and then by the way we live our lives, we're screaming, crucify Him, crucify Him. When trials and storms hit your life and you run from Him, and you do not believe the power, the resurrecting power and word of Jesus Christ, and you do not run to Him for refuge and protection and salvation. You see, daily sanctification is salvation. Oh, let it not be the heart of this church and the feelings of this church. Let it not be, Jesus, I love you. Three days later, crucify Him, crucify Him. And to persevere, to, to keep going in faith, fighting the battle, the battle of faith and pursuing Him, we need to be aware of how desperate we are for Him. That He is alive and ready and is saving us. But we are desperate for Him. Let's cry out every day. Jesus, we need you. 
Let us never read that word or sing the songs where we say, Hosanna, Hosanna. Let us never forget that that is a cry of desperation and we need Him. Let us always, always stop and be reminded and remember how much we need Him. Amen? Amen. Amen. All right, let's, let's pray. And uh, we're going to serve communion. If, uh, if you love the Lord Jesus, if you're part of the family, if you have, um, if you have uh, cast yourself upon Him uh, for the forgiveness of your sins, all of your hope is in Him, and you cried, Hosanna, save me, Lord. Uh, please join us. If, uh, if not, if you want to know more about this Jesus, if you don't know where you're at and, um, and you have not trusted Him for the forgiveness of your sins, the Bible says that uh, people that, that are part of it, that take part on the Lord's table, that eat of the body of, uh, of Christ and drink of His blood, which the, the Jews who drink symbolizes, that they eat condemnation for themselves and that would not be our desire for you. Uh, if you're questioning where you are with the Lord, feel free to also abstain. You don't have to, to take it, but uh, let every man examine themselves and see where they're at and partake or not. Amen. So let's pray and then we'll be serving uh, the elements uh, in just a few moments. Father, I thank you for the cross. I thank you for sending Jesus. Father, I ask that your Holy Spirit would never allow us to read that word Hosanna again and not remember how desperate we are for you. And oh, let us live it. Let us live it and learn that without that attitude, we will never beat sin because self-determination is not enough to cause us to love you above everything else and love everything else for your sake. So I pray, Father, bless us with your Holy Spirit. Bless us in the fight of faith. This is what I pray in the wonderful name of the Savior, Conqueror, King, who is humble and we love.